Take your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 8. Got a rather large passage this morning, um, verses 1 through 26. Um, really excited about it. I think God's going to use it in a great way. We're going to start in verse 1, read the whole thing to start off. This is God's word for us this morning. Typically, you know, they, they say to let, let the congregation uh, flip to the, the, the place in the Bible and give a, give a second before I start reading. But I'm just assuming your Bibles are falling open to Mark at this point in time, right? So it shouldn't take that long. Mark chapter 8, here we go. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. And said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he spit on his eyes and laid his hand on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. It's God's word for us today. Let's go to him and ask for him to bless it. We come, um, God, to bless you this morning and to be blessed by you, O God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are the eternal God, full of wisdom and knowledge. Your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. You are so beyond us. And so, God, we have come to you asking for help, for you to give us a spirit of wisdom, a spirit of revelation and the knowledge of Christ, that we can understand your word correctly and apply it to our lives. So enlighten 
the eyes of our heart so that we can know what is the hope to which we've been called. Open the eyes of our heart that we can behold wondrous things out of your laws. Reveal yourself to us because we can't know you unless you touch us and open our eyes so we can see you. And so, God, we want to see you this morning. Speak to us now through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Have you ever had a meal that was so good that it was unbelievable? Just an absolutely unbelievable meal. A couple years ago, I was in New Smyrna. I don't know if you guys have ever been to New Smyrna, but I went to this place called Merck's. Uh, I don't know if I'd recommend Merck's to you. I, it might classify, sorry if the owners of Merck's are watching. I don't know what the odds of that are, but, um, you know, <laughs> our reach doesn't really go down to New Smyrna. But if they are, I, I'm sorry to say, it's, it's more of a sketchy res- place to eat. You know, it's not the, not the most fine establishment I've ever been in. But went to Merck's and got the wings, and th- these wings were truly unbelievable. I don't know what they did exactly, um, but was amazing. And you know it's a good meal when you have it for dinner, okay, and then you have it for lunch the next day. And that's what I did that day on vacation. Went and had these wings. So if you're ever new Smyrna, I recommend those. Today we're looking at an amazing meal, no doubt, made by Jesus Christ that leads to unbelief, a meal that's unbelievable in a sense. And I pray that today um, this passage can give us ironically belief in Christ that this passage can give us a vision of who Christ is um, that it will give us a vision of the danger of unbelief and also give us a vision on how we can receive ourselves spiritual vision so I got three points the compassionate creation of bread the dangerous leaven of unbelief and the incremental restoration of vision first points verses 1 through 10 the compassionate creation of of bread. So Mark makes clear, if you see in verse 1, those first three words, in those days, meaning we should read this falling right after the course of events we've been studying so far in Mark. And starting in verse 24 of Mark chapter 7, we see Jesus um, enter into the Gentile regions, Christ among the Gentiles. And so with this phrase, in those days, in verse 1, we should assume that this is around the area of the Decapolis, where we left off last week. And so we see in verse 1 that a great crowd gathered, and so most likely this would have been a mixed crowd of people, not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles all together. And the problem in verse 1 is that they had nothing to eat. Jesus notices the problem, calls his disciples to him, and what does he say? Look at verses 2 through 3. He says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. Do you see in those two verses the compassion of Christ? hope you do. He says it pretty clearly there. I have compassion on the crowd. Jesus truly does care about these people. They're not even his disciples. They might not even be true believers. We don't know. It's just a crowd of 4,000 people, but nevertheless, he deeply cares for them. Also, I want to point out, do you see the attention of Christ in these two verses? That Jesus has so much compassion, he has so much care for these people that he notices them. He notices what they're going through. He notices that these people have a problem. They're hungry. He notices their potential problems. That if they travel so hungry all the way back to their homes because they've traveled from such a far distance, they might faint on the way. 
Jesus, as we see in Mark, is extremely busy immediately, 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 immediately. But he's not too busy to notice and pay attention to people. So this morning, right off the bat, I want you to be encouraged, Christian, whatever you're going through, that, that Jesus is a God of compassion and attention. And the heart of Christ did not change when he ascended to the right hand of the Father. No, in fact, he is still the same today that he was in this passage. And so I can say with confidence, he cares about you. He knows what's going on. He notices what's happening. But remember, not only does Jesus care, but Jesus cares and Jesus can. That was our two points when we studied the first feeding miracle. Jesus signifies he wants to help this great crowd. What do the disciples say in verse 4? How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Okay, so I just mentioned it there, but obviously this story, as you read this miracle, should remind you of another story. And you don't have to be a biblical scholar to make this connection, right? This is awfully similar to the feeding of the 5,000 that we see in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. In that story, there's 5,000 men. They're in a the desolate place. Jesus has compassion on them, just like this. He feeds everyone five loaves, two fish, and there's 12 baskets left over. With that in mind, it's pretty incredible to see the disciples ask this question, is it not? Jesus says, hey, I want to feed these people. And they're like, okay, how could we ever do that? It's so incredible, some scholars and skeptics think it's literally incredible, meaning not believable. Uh, they make the argument that the story of the feeding of the 4,000 is just a copy of the feeding of the 5,000. This could be either Mark making a mistake or Mark being confused or Mark intentionally fabricating the story. I reject all those. Obviously, I think they're pretty silly. And if you look at the different details in verses 19 through 20, it becomes pretty clear that Mark fully knows these are two separate, distinct, true events. Jesus says, do you remember this? And they say, yes. What the details there? Twelve baskets. Do you remember this? Yes. What details? Seven baskets. So Mark knows they're different events. Uh, and that's pretty clear. So instead of trying to criticize the scriptures, it's much easier to criticize the disciples in the story, is it not? The reason why people think it's unbelievable is because it's like, how could you ever be so, what's the politically correct word, obtuse in this moment? How could you be so slow to understand? But this is... The reality of human nature, I think we can affirm that. The disciples had abundant evidence of Jesus' competency to feed a great crowd of people with little to no resources in those 12 leftover baskets. I mean, those 12 baskets should be permanently burned in their minds. Five loaves, two fish produce 12 leftover baskets. But here um, we see that the evidence had not changed their worldview when push came to shove. When they are yet again in the exact same situation, they ask, them, they ask Jesus, how could we ever do this? They still, nevertheless, just saw the impossibility of the situation. Now, we want to criticize the disciples, but also, if you've been walking with the Lord for some time, you probably also want to go a little easy on the disciples, right? I mean, this kind of sounds like stuff we do all the time. I mean, we, we can, in this room, hopefully, and I, I pray you do, profess deep biblical theology where you, you, you confess, you know, as we say in Christ, our hope and life and death. But so often in the heat of the moment, our actions, can they not, profess worldly, shallow, sinful thinking. We can, we can be this 
This, this is a reflection of us. So let's not go too hard on the disciples. We see Jesus perform the miracle in a familiar way in verses 5 through 9. He does a bread inventory. There's seven loaves. He gets the crowd to sit down himself in this story. He blesses the food. Notice there's two blessings in this passage. There's a different detail from the two miracles. Um, one for the bread in verse 6. And one for the few small fish in verse 7. He has the disciples pass out the food just like last time. Take up the leftovers just like last time. Um, but there's seven baskets full instead of 12. All in all, there are about 4,000 people, which would be a much smaller number than the 5,000 men. Notice the difference there, 5,000 men, which there could be others, of course. And then here it's 4,000 people, which is probably, you know, right about 4,000 people. Many have asked, and you might be asking yourself, what's, what's the point of these two miracles? Why is there a feeding of 5,000? Why is there a feeding of 4,000? I don't always love this question because the reason could have easily been that Jesus had compassion on hungry people two times. Right? That would be, that'd be a sufficient reason. Right? He, had a, he saw a crowd that was hungry, wanted to feed them. He saw another crowd that was hungry, wanted to feed them. That would be enough. But I do think there's a proper impulse here to ask what's going on, mainly because if, you're, if you've been attentive to the scriptures as we've been walking through it, all this bread talk that's been happening through Mark chapter 6 through 8. It's been over and over, bread, 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 bread. You know, we just talked about Jesus feeding 5,000 Jewish men in the wilderness. After Jesus walked on the water, Mark 6, 51 through 52, they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. Mark is clear that this is not just a miracle. There's something deep to understand here that the disciples weren't getting. And then, what we talked about a couple weeks ago, Mark 7, 27 through 28, if you remember this parable that Jesus told where the bread was a symbol for his ministry, where the children would be, be fed first and then the, the dogs would eat the crumbs under the table. That's a bread metaphor talking about um, Jesus' ministry and Jews and Gentiles. Go back to listen to that if you, if you missed that one. And I want to suggest that that's what we see in this miracle. The... the, the the parable he tells, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. The Jews got fed first in chapter 6, verse 34 through 44. They got the bigger meal, 5,000 men, 12 baskets left over, versus 4,000 people, 7 baskets left over. But Jesus nevertheless blessed the Gentile people with his ministry in chapter 8. And this shows Jesus' glorious plan for his kingdom. The gospel is coming to not only the Jews, but first the Jews and then the Gentiles. If you're in our Bible reading plan, uh, you read this prophesied in Isaiah 49.6 this week. Where it says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob... And bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. That my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That's what we see happening in this miracle. Jesus comes first to the Jews. But now his ministry is, is, is foreshadowing his expansion to the Gentiles. Where he will be a light for us. And his salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. It's really good news. So in this section we see the compassionate creation of bread. 
And we should allow this section to be a reminder to us that Jesus Christ truly is the perfect provider. He provides for his people. He cares and he can even for a sinful Gentile like yourself, like myself. Okay, point number two, the dangerous leaven of unbelief in verses 11 through 21. You know, our passage today starts off with such a positive and encouraging note. I mean, that's just a beautiful story, the feeding of the 4,000. And then it takes a quick turn to a more negative story. So we go from the good vibes of Jesus' compassionate creation of bread, and then we are abruptly interrupted with the dangerous leaven of unbelief. Look at verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. So Pharisees come, they're looking to start an argument. Um, how so? They're, they're, looking, they're seeking from Jesus a sign from heaven. So the word sign doesn't just mean miracle. There have been plenty of miracles, obviously. This hasn't changed their opinion whatsoever. Think about Mark um, chapter 3, verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. So when Jesus does miracles, they don't dispute the miracles. They dispute the source of the power by which the miracles were happening, right? So when Jesus does miracles, they say, okay, but what's the source? So a sign in the context here, what they're asking for is indisputable evidence that Jesus Christ was from God. So they wanted to hear a voice from heaven, or they wanted to see God write something in the clouds, or they wanted uh, absolute confirmation that proved that Jesus was who he said he was. And notice this sign is not made in good faith. I mean, sorry, the, notice the request for a sign is not made in good faith. It's not because they really wanted to believe in Jesus and they were struggling with doubt. Look what it says. It says they were seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. They wanted to discredit and disprove Jesus. They wanted Jesus to play their game so that they could defeat Jesus. But Jesus was not going to play their game. Jesus doesn't play games. Look at verse 12. We see this game deeply grieved Jesus, where it says, He sighed deeply in his spirit. This is even stronger language than we saw last week in 734, where he sighed, right, at the this this mute and deaf man. He sighed, and we talked about how that just shows his burden, um, you know, for the brokenness of the world. This is even stronger language where he sighed deeply in his spirit. This gives us a glimpse of the emotional life of our Savior. And this should be easy for us to understand because you, you know that feeling, right? Haven't you sighed deeply in your spirit where you're just so frustrated and you just... That's what Jesus does. What frustrates you like that? Don't answer out loud. Jesus is deeply grieved by the Pharisees' hard-hearted unbelief. That's what deeply grieves Jesus. This hard-hearted unbelief is a wicked sign of the fall, and Jesus hates it. So what does he say in verse 12? Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Jesus denies the request in about as strong of language as he can. Absolutely not. I'm not giving you guys a sign. He's not playing the game. They're not getting what they're asking for. Jesus responds to faith. Jesus does not respond to 
unbelief. And let this be a lesson for us that often, I'm not going to say always, okay, often the demand for evidence is not by people who really want to believe, but instead is a sign of sinful, stubborn, and settled unbelief. Not always. Some people are really struggling. They, they, they want evidence of who Jesus is. But some people, many people, just, just are asking in a way to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's what Romans 1, 18-21 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So because they're sinful, there's an active suppression of the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. When it comes to the question of who is Jesus Christ, the evidence is clear. In the context of Mark, the evidence is clear and abundant. So what we see in the Pharisees is an example of Romans 1, where they know God, they actually see God in the flesh right before their eyes. The, the truth of who God is is plain to them, but they suppress the truth because of their sinful minds and choose unbelief because of their foolish, darkened hearts. And often that suppression looks like a demand for further evidence. Jesus, how about you absolutely prove who you are? Like everything he said and done hasn't already provided sufficient evidence. And so verse 13, and he left them. This is really strong language. He broke off from them. It's kind of like he's done with the Pharisees in this moment. He's instead going to get in the boat with his disciples, focus on them. So the disciples and Jesus are on this boat ride and a quote-unquote Crisis emerges. Crisis. Look what happens, verse 14. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf, okay? One loaf with the disciples. Wow. This is a crisis that reminds me, 30 minutes into the Dixon road trip to the beach, 30 minutes in, I realized I forgot my sunglasses. I mean, that was a crisis just like this one, okay? I bought $10 ones at Walmart when I got there. We can tell the disciples truly are upset by this because they continue discussing it in verse 16. You can just hear the accusations. Now this is all your fault, Thaddeus. No, it's your fault, Bartholomew. Jesus used this opportunity for a teaching moment. Jesus says, okay, they're, they're focused on bread let me teach them some crucial truth, some doctrine. What does he say in verse 15? He cautioned them saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So this is another parable. It's short, kind of unclear. What's Jesus teaching? Leaven is yeast that makes dough rise. 
and just a little bit of yeast in some dough will make the whole thing to leaven. It will, it will spread throughout that whole thing. Typically, with few exceptions, this idea of leaven is negative in the scriptures. Over and over and over again, it's a, it's a negative image. Consider 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? It's really fun to say. I recommend you know, maybe memorize that one. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. The metaphor of leaven is similar to the old church sign that says, give the devil an inch and he'll become your ruler. Okay. Or maybe the old youth group illustration that I've used way too many times, uh, where would you eat some brownies with just a little bit of poop in them? No, of course not, because that little bit of poop ruins the whole batch. Right? Now, the metaphor would need to be somehow the poop would expand throughout the brownies, but let's just move on. In context, what is the, the leaven Jesus is warning the disciples about? It's kind of interesting because it's not clear what the Pharisees and Herod have to do with each other. We do see them form an alliance in Mark chapter 3, verse 6. It says the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So what do these two groups have in common? Opposition to Jesus. The desire to destroy Jesus. This parable also shows up in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. It's helpful to know those. Uh, Matthew 16, 12 says, They understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then Luke 12, 1 says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So what is Jesus warning the disciples about in this short parable we find in Mark 8, 15? The hypocritical teaching of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians. And the hypocritical teaching that they have in common is their opposition to and rejection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is warning them and us about the leaven of unbelief. Os Guinness says, the word unbelief is usually used of a willful refusal to believe or a deliberate decision to disobey. So while doubt, he's making a distinction here between disbelief and doubt. I think this is important. So while doubt is a state of suspension between faith and unbelief, unbelief is a state of mind that is closed against God, an attitude of heart that disobeys God as much as it disbelieves, uh, as much as it disbelieves the truth. Unbelief is the consequence of a settled choice. What would this look like in your life? Just a couple of ideas. D dismissing the promises of the Scriptures. Dismissing the warnings of the Scriptures. So to hear a promise and say, that's, that's not true. To hear the warnings and say, that's not going to happen. Maybe it's, you know, unbelief would look like living like an atheist. So you, you have this profession of deep doctrine, but then as you go out in your life... Everything else is untouched by your faith. You never think of God. You never think of His presence. Um, you live a life of prayerlessness. That would be unbelief. Maybe it's skepticism in your Bible reading. Maybe you're constantly reading the Bible as a skeptic, standing as a judge over it, trying to disprove it or make arguments against it or you know, constantly casting doubt on everything it says. Maybe you're just simply cynical towards God. 
cynical towards the things of God. Maybe you know God's word, but you actively choose to disobey it. That would be unbelief. You say, okay, I know what God's word says. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to continue to live life how I want to live it. You need to ask the question, is any unbelief in your heart? Or maybe I should ask, where is unbelief in your heart? Because what we see here is that even a little bit is dangerous. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Jesus cautions the disciples here and says, watch out. Beware of it. Don't let it creep up in your heart. Hebrews 4, 12-13 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sinclair Ferguson says, Unbelief is like leaven, small but influential, apparently insignificant, but all pervasive in its influence. I want to warn you, brothers and sisters, today to not let unbelief linger in your heart, to recognize how destructive it is that Jesus himself deeply sighed when faced with it in the Pharisees. So deal with it today. Confess your unbelief to God. Repent of your unbelief today. Don't be hardened by sin. Don't fall away from the living God, as Hebrews 4.12 says. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's exactly what Jesus is telling the disciples. He was just confronted with the unbelief of the Pharisees in 11 through 13. He's burdened by it. He wants to caution his disciples about the dangerous influence that unbelief can have on a heart. And how do the disciples respond? Look at verse 16. And they begin to discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Their minds are on physical things, not on spiritual things. Reminds me of how Jesus will rebuke Peter next week. Mark 8, 33, where he says, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Is our story today not a great illustration of that? Jesus is saying, Beware of the false teaching, the hypocrisy, the unbelief of the Pharisees and, um, and the Herodians. It looks like, it acts like leaven. And they say, Now that you mention it, we are hungry. We do only have one loaf of bread. Is that, does that not exactly how we can respond so often to the things of God? So often in our services, we, we worship the Lord, and then as soon as that clock hits 11.35, we're on to checking our fantasy um, rosters and thinking about lunch and moving on and, and just completely moving on from God's Word. We set our minds on things of man. Jesus is aware of this in verse 17. Notice that Jesus is aware of this. He becomes upset. He begins to interrogate them with question after question to awaken the disciples from their spiritual stupor. We see eight questions in five verses. Absolutely interrogation. Um, in verses 17 through 21, he says, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves of the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Jesus' questions reveal the disciples' lack of understanding that is, that is the yeast, the leaven that is leading them to unbelief. 
The clearest example of their lack of understanding and unbelief is the fact that they are stressed about bread after seeing Jesus create bread for a total of at least 9,000 people. Okay, they got 13 people in the boat. One loaf of bread. And they're stressed after seeing Jesus feed 9,000 people with, I can't do the math right now, but like, how many loaves of bread is that? 12 loaves of bread. Thank you, Janet. Chelsea's the accountant. Okay. So that's why Jesus is reminding them of the details in the two miracles, verses 19 through 20. They lack so much understanding. Jesus just comes out in verse 17 and says, Are your hearts hardened? Remember, to have a hard heart doesn't just speak to our emotions. In Hebrew thought, the heart was the core of who we were intellectually, emotionally, spiritually. So Jesus is asking, has unbelief caused you to be so unfeeling and unreceptive to the things of God that you are unable to receive the clear revelation of who I am when it's right in front of your face? Jesus goes on in verse 18, having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear. Jesus is accusing them of having physical eyes but not spiritual sight, of having physical ears but not spiritual hearing. This phrase, these questions are steeped in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 5.21 Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Ezekiel 12.12 Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house, who have eyes to see but see not, who have ears to hear but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. Isaiah 6, 9 through 10 says, And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. If you remember, this last passage, Isaiah 6 through 9, was actually quoted in Mark chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. And in the context there, Jesus was saying that his parables were performing a ministry of separation. It was creating outsiders, the crowd and the Pharisees, and creating insiders, the disciples. And the outsiders were those who see but not perceive, and they hear but they don't understand. And so Jesus asking this question in verse 18 is indicating that they are currently acting like outsiders. Scary. Think about the danger the disciples were in with this moment. In the presence of Jesus Christ and completely missing who he was. What were they focused on in the moment? One loaf of bread. Consider the danger of focusing so much on the wrong problem that you're blind to your true problem. It's like having terminal brain cancer, but you think your biggest problem is your dog peeing in the house. Okay, you're focused on the wrong thing. The disciples thought their biggest problem was a lack of bread. But they are really dealing with the leaven of unbelief. I want you to consider this morning, are you sure the problems that you are constantly focused on are truly your biggest problems in life? We need a God-centered lens through which to see our lives. Where we can see our lives, our situations, our circumstances through the lenses of God's Word instead of our experiences, our opinions, or our physical desires. We need to set our minds on the things of God, not on things of man. 
So how do we do that? How do we receive that vision? You know, if you're focused on the wrong thing, if you're completely missing it, if you, if you don't know Jesus, if you need to grow, how do we receive that? I think this passage shows us only by the grace of God found in the touch of Jesus Christ. The incremental restoration of vision, our last point. This miracle is only recorded in the Gospel of Mark. There's a lot of reasons why, possibly. Matthew and Luke might not have wanted to include this story because it's, it's a little strange, maybe a little potentially embarrassing at the beginning. Um, but it's extremely similar to the miracle we studied last week. Let's read it in its entirety, verses 22 through 26. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hand on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. So a blind man is brought to Jesus. Jesus takes the blind man out of the village. Jesus spits on his eyes and touches him. It's very different from Jesus' usual modus operandi, is it not? But similar to what we saw last week where Jesus had a little thing he did before the healing. But what Jesus does next is very unusual. If you notice in verse 23, Jesus asked a question in the middle of his miracle saying, Do you see anything? So this is the ninth question Jesus has asked in a short time. If you go up to verse 17. And this should really stand out to us because every healing that we've seen Jesus do in Mark, think back through all of them, has this instantaneous quality to it, does it not? Jesus says, you're healed. Or Jesus says, your daughter's healed. And you go and they're healed. It's just so quickly. And then here, you know, Jesus says, hey, did it work? You know, do you see anything? So interesting. And then even more wild is what the man says. Verse 24. I see people, but they look like trees walking. <laughs> he's supposed to be seeing normal people, but instead he's seeing ants. Walking trees. He has vision, but it's all messed up. The man was partially healed. It's not complete and immediate restoration. and We have truly never seen anything like this. So what does Jesus do? Step 2, verse 25, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly, sent the man home. So we see an incremental restoration of sight, this two-step process, but nevertheless, a complete restoration of sight. What's happening in this passage? Was this some sort of extraordinary blindness that caused Jesus difficulty? I don't think so, because we've seen Jesus do much harder things than this. I mean, nothing's too hard for our God. I think Mark intentionally inserted this story right here. I think Jesus intentionally performed this miracle in this way to show us what's happening with the disciples. Consider Jesus asking the question to the disciples in verse 18, as we've already read. Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear. And on both sides of that question is a miracle where Jesus gives someone ears to hear in chapter 7, verse 31. We talked about that last week. And on the other side of that question, a miracle where Jesus gives someone eyes to see. Mark is giving us the clear 
picture that Jesus can give you the ability to hear. Jesus can give you the ability to see. And sometimes that works itself out in a process. This man went from being blind to having partial vision to having full vision. The same thing is happening to the disciples all throughout the Gospel of Mark. They were spiritually blind. Now they have partial vision, but it can still be blurry. They get things wrong. They don't completely understand. But Jesus is going to continue to touch them and disciple them until they have a clear vision of who he is. The process of discipleship and vision giving is going to go all the way up until um, when their vision of Jesus Christ, their vision of the kingdom of God and its realities is completely cleared up at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I think that's what's going on here. This is a picture of what's happening to the disciples. Yeah, they're not getting everything, but Jesus is discipling them. Jesus is touching them. Jesus is opening their eyes. And then when you get to the end of Mark, they've witnessed the resurrection. Christ, their eyes are truly open to, to the truth, and they go out and change the world. So how do we apply this to our lives? I think this applies to the beginning, middle, and end of our discipleship. First, we should realize our complete dependence upon Jesus Christ to give us ears to hear and eyes to see. We should pray the prayer of Ephesians 1.18 that we should have the eyes of our hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Realizing that Jesus Christ will open the eyes. He's opening the eyes of the disciples. We see that next week where, G where Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ. So Jesus can open your eyes spiritually. He does it to the disciples. He can open your eyes physically. So we should pray every day before we read the Bible, something like Psalm 119.18, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Second, I believe this um, picture should call us to be patient. That our growth in Christ is incremental, just like this miracle. Yes, we should grow. You should grow as a Christian. But no, we aren't going to be immediately perfect in this world after salvation. Can anybody testify to that? That you're not immediately sanctified after you're immediately justified. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Do you see that? In Christ we are being transformed. It's incremental growth. It comes in process. It comes in steps. Our vision gets clearer and clearer and clearer. And where does our being transformed comes from in 2 Corinthians 3.18? For this comes from the Lord. Just like in this passage. Finally, we have the promise of Philippians 1.6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Listen, yes, our vision is blurry now. Yes, we can misunderstand and be confused by God's word. Yes, we can't see Christ as clearly as we may want to see him currently. But we have the promise of God to cling to that one day we will have perfect vision. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Yes, in this fallen world, and due to our sin nature, we are dealing with an incremental restoration of vision. Just like this man, we will nevertheless experience a complete restoration of vision. We will fully see and fully know the perfect provider, the bread of life himself, Jesus Christ the Lord for all eternity. So this is a picture of a, a, a literal 
historical healing that Jesus did, but also a picture of our growth in Christ. That we're going to grow and seek more clearly and clearly because of the touch of Jesus Christ. And it reminds me of that old chorus, What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. And when he takes me by the hand and leads me to the promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be. That's the promise we have in scripture. That Jesus Christ will open our eyes. He's growing us now. He's giving you spiritual sight through his word. But one day our sight will be physical. Where we see Jesus Christ face to face. Where we'll fully know him. And we can trust that Jesus Christ can take us there. Trust in his grace this morning. Oh Father. To you be all praise and glory. God blessed be your name. Oh God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. God, you have guided us all of our lives. We are just trophies of your grace, God, and ask for you to continue to work in us. God, our needs, every single one of them, you have supplied in our hunger. You have filled us. By your wounds, we have been healed. And so, God, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. We are your people, and we want to serve you. We want to see you, God. We want to have a vision of you. So, God, open our eyes spiritually now. Um, through the power of your word, God, we know that you can do it. Give us eyes to see. Open the eyes of our heart. Help us see you, God. Um, God, and I pray that we can, in this time now, worship and adore you in this response, Jesus. In your name, Jesus Christ.